It's really important to understand that what we're aiming for is functional breathing. That means a breathing pattern that suits the function that that person is doing. However, if someone's going for a run and they've been running 10, 15 kilometers, it's okay to open your mouth in order to breathe. So it's not like one is not allowed to breathe whatsoever through their mouth. It's just based on function, right? The function that that person is is doing. Practically every patient that is coming in with TMJ issues or difficulties breathing or um, mouth breathing, tongue dysfunctions, poor sleep quality, almost all of them have some sort of cranial lesions that are impacting the, the movement of the cranium. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Decentralized Radio. Today, we have Dr. Jalal Khan on the line. Jalal, how's it going? It's going really well, Tristan. How are you? I'm good. Jalal and I actually met in person here in Australia a few weeks ago, which was really cool. Uh, Got to see kind of what he's doing um, and what we want to get into in terms of the Quantum Kid uh, collaboration, I guess you have um, going ongoing. And yeah, he's... uh, so you're a dentist, you're a practicing dentist, but also not a normal dentist. And that's why I'm excited to talk about this. Would you say holistic and, and quantum dentistry is, is that, do you tell people that or do you stick to a certain terminology? Um, that's a good question. I don't usually get get stuck into labeling yeah. things um, because you get, one, you confine yourself and, and be like, I mean, the word holistic there are a lot of holistic practitioners that, that have holes in their work, um, so oh, to yeah. speak. So, um, but quantum dentistry definitely aligns with what I'm doing, particularly with um, some of the stuff with different colors into the eyes and how that impacts the teeth and the cranium, etc. You got to see a little taste of that when you and I met. Um, and uh, yeah, to me, that's super, super exciting. So more than happy to talk about all of that and more. Yeah, I guess maybe first is is how did you get interested or what pushed you towards um, wanting to learn more and seeking, you know, a different route in terms of health, in terms of dentistry? Because, yeah, obviously you go the standard education route, you treat patients, but most people, they, they stay in their lane. They don't question a lot of things. They kind of just, you know, teach what was taught to them and you've clearly paved a path for yourself and now have become very educated, very knowledgeable and are now paving a frontier in your own treatment modalities with the quantum kid and quantum dentistry. So what really inspired that kind of path for you? Thank you for um, those kind words. It's um, yeah, definitely been a big journey for me over the past three, four, five years. I think what really happened was maybe 2017, 2018, I had realized that centralized dentistry had failed. And um, in the words of one of my mentors, Dr. Jim Carlson, dentistry was and still is in the dark ages. And um, when I realized that, I came to appreciate that most dentists, when they leave dental school, they really know a lot about teeth and how to fix them with drilling and filling and veneers and crowns and root canal therapies, etc but they don't necessarily appreciate that the teeth are actually part of the jaws 
and that they should start to consider the jaws a little bit more when they are planning treatments for their patients. And so there are a few dentists, but they are out there who graduate from thinking just about teeth and they start to think about jaws. And um, they were commonly thought of or known as functional dentists. Um, but it's for me, I, as a functional dentist or an airway dentist, um, since 2017, 2018 onwards, I still felt that something was missing. And it was bugging me because as a practitioner, I was seeing Tristan A and Tristan B both looking exactly the same, but Tristan A, and I'd make them the, the same appliance or deliver the same sort of treatment, but Tristan A would respond really, really well, and Tristan B wouldn't respond well whatsoever. And so I, I guess I kind of felt bad because I like to do the best for my patients and it wasn't good enough. And so I had to kind of go back to the drawing board because once you start to go into the airway dentistry side of things um, and you start to focus on breathing and sleep quality because of breathing comfort and breathing function, etc., you start to open up this doorway of seeing a lot of patients who are waking up really, really tired. And so when they're waking up really tired, obviously it's because they're not having a good night's sleep. And there's a lot of people out there who attribute their poor quality sleep to the fact that they're not breathing correctly while they're sleeping. And there's definitely merit to that. And so you start to focus more on breathing function and um, assessing the jaws with regard to airway and nose and all those types of things. But even then, there was still a whole other area that was being completely missed by airways dentists, and that was mitochondrial function. Because if people are tired when they're waking up, surely there's a bioenergetic issue at play there. And so I started to go down the the search for what was really at the root cause of um, people that had chronic fatigue and people that had fibromyalgia, and that really led me to quantum biology and all the work of Dr. Jack Cruz and um, all the work that he's amalgamated from all the different disciplines within science and evolution and nature and um, physics, etc., to put together this like beautiful framework of how we should be looking at um, the, the human body, which is a quantum open, it's an open quantum thermodynamic system. So yeah, it was really this drive to be the best that I could be for my patients so that I could achieve the best results for them and um, be predictable in the work that I was providing for them because I hate to overpromise and underdeliver. And um, I'm really grateful because it's really pushed me beyond my limits. I've been doing a massive deep dive into quantum biology, circadian biology, understanding how light interacts with electrons and protons and all that type of stuff. But at the same time, simultaneous to that, really stripping apart the entire functional dentistry paradigm which much like functional medicine has lots of holes in it and really putting that back together and understanding how the mouth actually works with the cranium and the sacrum, which is the tailbone and all of those interrelations. And I'm um, happy, to, happy to elaborate more on that as we get through the, um, through the recording. But um, yeah, that's really been my journey. I think it's really inspiring because as you know, a practitioner, like I said, so many folks, they just you know get out there and it's almost like the end of the road. It's like, oh, I, I know everything and then this is what I recommend. And yeah, it's, it's easier to do that. Maybe they're overwhelmed by patients or the system that they're involved in, but they kind of lose touch with that uh, desire to learn and desire to really, yeah, find the best for their patients. So it's, it's awesome to hear that story. 
I think it should inspire other practitioners, other, um, you know, health uh, dentists or sorry, health coaches, consultants, dentists, any medical doctors, anyone really. And it's something that also I went through because I started getting better on my self-healing journey. But then I always thought, you know, there's more to this. There's, there's always more. And I did a lot of the, you know, stuff that's aligned with circadian biology and quantum biology, like blocking some EMFs, turning my phone off at night, um, turning off Wi-Fi, blocking blue light. I did this like four years ago, but it wasn't until, you know, past year and a half that I really started diving actually way deeper into the science behind it. And it, and it is fascinating and it's clearly a, a missing piece. Uh, and it's really fun to get into the weeds of it, especially with this, you know, engineering background of mine. But something that you've posted about, and you mentioned the back to the dentistry, the the airways, the breathing, the jaw. Uh, this has become, you know, a popular, I feel like, topic in the health space is, you know, how we breathe, how we, you know, nasal breathing is important, mewing, uh, chewing gum, mastic mouth gum, uh, mouth taping was what I was going to lead to is something that's become very popular. And I think you posted recently, and this aligned with a post I saw, I think it was one or two months ago, that mouth taping is actually not really going to solve the, the root cause of, of the issues. So maybe you could talk a little bit about breath and jaw health and just how we breathe and why this is a you know, big issue for a lot of people. And maybe mouth taping is not the long-term solution. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, breathing is, it's really important to understand that what we're aiming for is functional breathing. That means a breathing pattern that suits the function that that person is doing. And so there's a lot of a focus on nasal breathing and using your using your um your diaphragm correctly which isn't necessarily tummy out tummy back in but actually blowing up the 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 ribs and moving things laterally and even posteriorly breathing into your back so to speak um that's a, a that's a more functional type of breathing however if someone's going for a run and they've been running 10 15 kilometers it's okay to open your mouth in order to breathe so it's not like one is not allowed to breathe whatsoever through their mouth. It's just based on function, right? The function that that person is is doing. And um, But if we keep things simple and we just say, okay, Tristan, you're at rest. You're listening to me right now. What should your optimal breathing posture be? You should be breathing through your nose with your lips closed, which is how you are right now. Your teeth may be either slightly touching or even a little bit open, and your tongue should be resting against the roof of your mouth. And that, mo that breathing function should be silent. No one should be able to hear it. And those are kind of like the four or five main things that are necessary for just functional breathing at rest. But that's hard for a lot of people because they've got a blocked nose or um, they've got jaws which are too small for the tongue, which then pushes the tongue back onto the airway. And then there's not enough of a pharynx or a, a windpipe, so to speak that allows the air to, put, to, to come through. And so then they need to posture their mouth open and push their tongue forward in order for the air to travel down the back. And so, I mean, breath is, breath is really complex and there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of conflicting 
thought um, out there about how one should be breathing, should it be Wim Hof breathing, should it be Buteyko breathing, et cetera, et cetera. But I like to just keep it simple. Whatever works for someone, whatever is comfortable, there's definitely merit to breath work in calming down one's autonomic nervous system and increasing that parasympathetic rest and digest type um, feeling inside the body as well as helping to calm anxieties and um, and balance out emotions. But aside from that, we shouldn't necessarily need to think too much about breathing because it should just be effortless, much like what optimal health should be like. Yeah, I, I actually heard that exact perspective the other day. It's like, you know, people over, they overthink breathing because, I mean, it has become such an issue, but it's like you have to do breath work, you have to do this and what have you. And really... Yeah, it came down to it, it should be involuntarily, you know, done. So we, we shouldn't be thinking about it all the time. But, you know, if there is a state of high stress or a time where it could be helpful to calm you down, yeah, that's a brief moment. But 98% of the time, it should just be, you know, it is what you're doing just without a thought. So I think that's cool. I think it goes back to, like you said, the the reason why, um our jaws or our facial structures are kind of misaligned to our body. And, and it seems like that's a, you know, a huge issue and it's a result of our, our modern lifestyles. So I would ask what, what is the main driver of this? Is it diet related? Is it something that we're not doing when we're, you know, developing obviously the, the jaw muscles maybe from just breath and diet compared to ancestrally, which is a lot different kind of to our soft modern lives or is there another component that people that's what most people talk about but is there another component to that as well yeah so i think it's uh, good to start on what are the two or three well-known reasons and drivers behind why jaws are small because it's important to acknowledge them and they are the types of foods that we're eating in modern mm-hmm. society which are highly processed and they're soft and so Literally, we're not actually stimulating the growth of the jaws through Wolf's Law, which is tension on the bone. So that's one thing. Um, th- the second thing is we have a entire society or generation of children who are growing up with allergies and sensitivities mm. to foods and environmental toxins and chemicals, etc. Because they're living in cities and there's just so much, um, so much, so many allergens that are around. And that creates an inflammation in the nasal tissues, which makes it difficult for that person to breathe through their nose. And so then they have to open their mouth in order to breathe. And what that does is it takes the tongue out of the equation when it comes to upper jaw development, because the tongue is actually the best orthodontist. And if we have a tongue that is resting up against the roof of the mouth while that child is breathing, then that tongue is actually going to stimulate the development of the upper jaw sideways and forwards out of the cranium. So mouth breathing takes the mouth breathing because of a blocked nose takes the tongue out of the equation. And the third very commonly known reason is children are not being breastfed for long enough or not being breastfed at all. And I do like to acknowledge that as a man it's very easy for me to say that um, because it's definitely there are instances where it's just really difficult for for mother to be able to breastfeed, breastfeed. and um, there are lots of, I wouldn't like to say interventions, but modalities and help that mothers can have to ensure that the tongues are operating functionally, even if they're being bottle fed. Um, so um, it's not the be all and end all if one can't breastfeed, but 
at the end of the day, there are still a lot of children that are not growing up being breastfed. And one of the benefits of breastfeeding is aside from connection to mother and microbiome um, and all those types of things is the actual tongue motion that is required in order to extract the milk from mother's breast. So those are the three main reasons why we have small jaws. But there's another reason which is uh, really, really important. I would say perhaps the most important, but is equally the most overlooked. And that is a locked cranium. So what do I actually mean by a locked cranium? What I mean is our cranial bones, we've got, I think we've got 22 bones in the, in the skull and face. And all of those bones, they interact with each other via the sutures. So they actually interdigitate. And if you've ever felt a baby's head, you feel what are called the fontanelles, which are the really soft areas where there's actually no bone. You can even palpate the brain through that. And then what happens over time as baby grows is that the, the cranial bones actually grow and close off that space. And then they, where they meet is like an interdigitation, which is known as a suture. But we've been taught in centralized medicine, or we've been told that those sutures are fused, that there's like literally no give, there's no movement whatsoever. And nothing could be further from the truth because what we know, um, and this is the field of cranial osteopathy, and we've known this for more than 100 years, is that these bones actually move and flex at the suture where they meet another bone. So we actually have this rhythmic motion of the cranial bones out and back in, much like our lungs inflate and deflate while we are breathing. And so the osteopaths actually call this the primary respiratory motion. The actual movement of the bones is a primary respiratory motion, more primary than the actual act of taking a breath. And so this rhythmic motion of the bones in the cranium is absolutely essential in order for the jaws to develop down and forwards because the base of the cranium, the back of the cranium where the occipital bone is, and um, that drives the growth of the of the jaws further forward. We know this based on how the bones e interact with each other because the occipital bone interacts with the sphenoid bone, which is the keystone of the skull, and off the sphenoid bone hangs the upper jaw, which is literally your entire midface. So your entire midface is literally one bone away from the back of your head. And so there's you don't have to be Einstein to appreciate that the back of the head has a huge role to play in how the the mid face and the lower face actually grow. So a locked cranium is when that rhythmic motion of the bones is is impacted in some way by some sort of trauma. And that could be a birth trauma because the trauma might have been super traumatic for baby. They may have been born with the umbilical cord around their neck or it might have been a really, really long labor and they were stuck in, in um, the, the birth canal for several hours. It might have been an emergency C-section or it might have just been a planned C-section. And what happens with those instances is that, for instance, uh, for example, the, in the case of a C-section, baby is actually missing out of, from passing through the birth canal, which as we know is good from a microbiome Passover perspective, but is also good because baby's head is shaped as it passes through the birth canal. So a C-section baby actually misses out on their head being shaped by the birth canal. Um, mothers that are induced, also that can also be a source of a birth trauma. And it's not necessarily the case that every single baby that's born with where their mother was induced is going to have a traumatic birth or a trauma to their head, but it's always a chance. 
Other examples of traumas, if we move away from birth, could be just like sports injuries. You know, you could get um, playing baseball and you went to hit the ball and you missed and you weren't wearing a helmet when you were 14 years old and it smacks you right bang in the temple, for instance. Um, that can be a trauma or it could be from boxing or it could be a motor vehicle accident and a whiplash. So all these traumas, they lock up the cranium so that it's still moving but the bones aren't moving as well as what they should be as well as what they used to be so that rhythmic movement is no longer there. And so when the bones are stuck and they're not moving as well, we now have a locked cranium and it's basically impossible for the jaw to be able to fully express itself because you can't grow a jaw in a cranium that's locked up. So that's for me that fourth reason, a locked cranium, a locked craniosacral mechanism is perhaps the most important. Um, I see it every day in my patients and practically every patient that is coming in with TMJ issues or difficulties breathing or um, mouth breathing, tongue dysfunctions, poor sleep quality, almost all of them have some sort of cranial lesions that are impacting the, the movement of the cranium. I think it's important to also lay out the fact that the cranium is attached to the tailbone by something called the dura mater, which is literally called in, I think it's in Latin, it's called, it means tough mother. And the dura mater attaches into the cranium from the inside. It wraps around the brain and then it passes down through the, um, a, a hole called the foramen magnum in the, in the base of the skull and wraps around the entire spinal cord and attaches into the tailbone. So what happens if Tristan's riding horses while he grows up and has a really bad fall off the horse and lands on his tailbone? He creates a little kink in the tailbone, which then twists and distorts the dura mater, which is connecting up to the sacrum. So a lot of the locked craniums aren't necessarily because of a primary lesion to the head. It may actually be from a, a sacral trauma, a tailbone trauma. Um, and we know that the hips attach at the back to the tailbone. So our hip issues are actually sacral issues. There's all, that's quite often the case and it's often overlooked. Um, so this is why there's such a strong relationship between the hips and the jaws. So yeah, I'm kind of laying out this big picture of how, as we can all appreciate, it's all connected. It's just that much like in centralized medicine, everyone's in their silos focusing on their specialists. It's the same amongst manual therapists as well. And dentists, are, I guess you can even think of as, as manual therapists in the way, because what they do has a huge impact on posture. If you're a health conscious food consumer who's also very active, you know how big of a struggle it is to find a bar that is both convenient and nutrient dense. That's why I was so excited when I discovered the Alpa Bar. The Alpa Bar is a meat-based bar that contains only simple ingredients, 100% grass-fed beef, tallow, and honey, and is both nutrient dense and convenient and packs a caloric punch of over 300 calories. For me, this was a game changer and is now the go-to snack and fuel source I use when I'm hiking, camping, hunting, skiing, or doing anything in the outdoors and I don't have the resources to cook a full meal. The Alpa Bar is made proudly in Colorado and only uses locally sourced meat. JJ and Rob are also extremely based and accept Bitcoin for payment. I highly recommend you check out the Alpa Bar for any time you need a nutrient-dense and convenient snack on the go. Check them out at eatalpa.com and use code DRADIO5 at checkout to get a 5% discount. And if you pay in Bitcoin, you can get an additional discount on top of that. 
That's eataupa.com and use code DRADIO5 at checkout. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's, that's so fascinating because, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that it's all connected, right? But you never think that, yeah, tailbone or falling and having hip issues could really affect your, your cranium and then your jaw posture and your breathing down the road. So, so is this really just imperative from a childhood development perspective as well? Um, like that timeline, is there a certain age, I guess, when your uh, cranium is kind of set, cranium is set in a certain position or, or locked, or is are those rhythms, those beats kind of ongoing throughout our whole life? Or yeah, I guess what's the dynamic there in terms of uh, getting older and that not being as important or it's kind of gets set in stone. Cause then obviously the follow-up there is if you're an adult, how malleable is it to kind of change? It's a great question. The adults still have a, a chance to fix things. It's not like things fuse when you're 30 or when you're 40, or when you're 50. And I commonly treat patients who are in their thirties, forties, fifties, sixties. Um, so it's just way easier in the children because we can actually grab them while we are guiding their jaw development. And so we are able to guide in the right direction as opposed to pick them up once they're fully grown and developed with all their traumas and then try and rewind the script and take them back in the right direction again. So usually with adults as well, you, you, you're dealing with a lot of emotional and psychological traumas and, um, and, uh, emotion disruptions regarding chakras and all that type of stuff. So you, we tend to work with a lot of other practitioners in different spaces to help us heal the patients that we work with. But, um, but yeah, with the children, it's just so much easier because um, we can grab them while they're three or four or five and even up till 10, 11 and really just take them in the right direction. And um, we see fantastic transformations in the children that we work with. I'm saying we because I work very closely with a cranial osteopath who you've met, Cole Clayton. And um, Cole's brilliant in being able to sense what the what the cranium needs, what the sacrum needs, and then also see what jaw appliances or oral appliances, the impact that they're having on the cranium. And that's quite a profound thing. Um, so it's it's quite beautiful that my optimal expression as a clinician is not actually on my own but in sync with someone else like I can only be the best clinician that I can be if I have another clinician a cranial osteopath working alongside me so it really brings out a lot of humility a lot of okay I'm um, dentists tend to be very territorial you know so it's like we don't want anyone else looking in the mouth because that's our territory but you know I have a cold my cranial osteopath he does tongue tie releases with his hand, fascial releases with his fingers in the patient in my patient's mouths, and a lot of dentists will be like, "What are you doing? That's you know, that's my patient's mouth. Like you know, that's my territory." Um, but uh, you know, I have the humility to. Well, I like to think I have the humility to let him work in the mouth, and then he lets me palpate craniums and and um, understand the impact that my appliances are having on that person's cranial bone rhythm rhythmic movement. So it's a really nice um, synergy that we have. Yeah, I got to experience that, I guess, teamwork and synergy firsthand. And it, it really was incredible how in tune you guys were. I mean, you pretty much knew what was going down before you even really sussed it out physically, which was super cool. So that is the the Quantum Kid, I guess, collaboration that you guys have. And 
the osteopath occupation in general, it is a bit different here in the U.S. Uh, or not. I'm not there physically, but in the U.S. it's a, a bit different. I don't see as much of that. Maybe um, it's something that it, it exists. Obviously, a, a DO, a doctor of osteopathic, uh, I think that's right, medicine. Yeah. But the you know the what Cole was really an expert in, and and what I saw. I, I, don't, I haven't seen much of it, so I think that collaboration really is uh, profound and it's clearly had uh, a big impact on, on your clients and, and your patients and transforming them. So, m- yeah, maybe something else that we could talk about is, is kind of how you mapped out uh, that relationship and, you know, how did that come to fruition in the beginning? And then we could get into maybe the, the cone and, and the color types as well yeah, sure, sure. That. so um, I mean coming back to what you were saying really early on in the recording how it takes a lot for a practitioner to go through all of the education that centralized education the indoctrination and somehow break out of it um, and it will, I guess a nice thing to add to that is the fact that I have learned more from my patients than from any university and my patients have actually guided me in the right direction towards how to heal them and how to be a better clinician. And so that is like something which I always keep front of mind because I'm always getting recommendations or things sent to me, you know, on Instagram in the DMs and stuff, or what do you think of this or read this? And look, I do my best to keep up with all of it. But the reason I make an effort is because the, that patient is sending me that for a reason. So there's got to be something to it. Otherwise, why would they be sending it? And so you've got to trust what the quantum realm is sending you. And so that same thing happened with Cole and I because we had a patient that brought us together. And she, because mm. Cole and I live eight hours away. So why is, why is he collaborating with me in Sydney? And why am I I'm flying up to Byron Bay to, to work with him? It's because we both finally found each other, two clinicians in different disciplines that finally get it. And it's kind of like, for a lot of my patients, I can't do what I do best unless I have Cole by my side. And for him, it's the same as well. And so we had a patient who I was trying to help with some jaw appliances and Cole was trying to help with some cranial osteopathy. And Cole and I were both kind of making 50% there, but we just couldn't really crack the case for for Emily. And um, she sent us both an email and said, you know, you guys have to connect, etc. And um, I looked him up and I'm like, oh, he's eight hours away. What am I going to do with an osteopath that's eight hours away. Um, so I actually, if I'm honest, I actually ignored the email. So me saying that I have a lot of humilities, maybe that's not the case. Um, so I ignored the email because I just thought, what am I going to do with it anyway? So Cole messages me um, probably two months, three months later on Instagram because um, he finally decided to join social media. And um, uh, and uh, we got talking and very quickly we are on the phone and mapping out each of our approaches and um, and uh, I think within a week we knew that we had to work together and within two weeks we knew we had to set up a business to get fully commit to it because it was really just like the perfect quantum entanglement. But the crux of that story is it was, it was a patient that brought us together because she could see that Cole and I were both um, perfectly aligned in the way that we wanted to work and um, she could see that the two of us combined would not be one plus one equals two but you know one plus one equals four or five and it's definitely been the case because as you saw when a patient walks in the room Cole and I independently are able to body type a person and then start to work out and I'm sure we'll talk about what the body typing all is soon 
but we're able to body type a person and then work out where they are at, what level they're operating at and really get a gauge from their body language and um, et cetera to see how healthy they are. And so, I mean, Colin and I, whenever we work together, one of the reflections we have is that more and more we're becoming kind of like a primary care practitioner because people are coming to us and we kind of know exactly what they need. And sometimes that's us, sometimes that's not us. Sometimes it's just an alteration in what they're eating or what they're drinking. Maybe they need to stop having raw milk or maybe they need to um, maybe they need to start having um, oysters or whatever the case is. Um, but uh, we're able to really knuckle down and work out. We had an instance in um, in the clinic in Byron Bay where um, a young girl came in, really, really healthy, um, but she had this pain right behind her right ear here. And um, it was actually emanating from some d- dysfunction in her ribs. And Cole, when Cole and I got to the bottom of it, we worked out that the breathing was creating the cranial compensation up here, which is always the case. Whenever someone has pain, it's not because that's the site of the pain. That's just a compensation for some sort of dysfunction somewhere else in the body. So that's where you have to go and become a bit of a detective, throw out the algorithms that you're taught in centralized healthcare and actually put together the algorithm yourself. Okay, what's actually causing this person's problem? Where is it coming from? Once we worked out that it was coming from the ribs, we then had to kind of dig deeper and we did some kinesiology muscle testing and worked out that it was actually that person drinking raw milk was actually throwing off the breathing. And I suspect from my quantum lens, because it was high in deuterium, it was throwing off the breathing and that was then actually affecting the primary respiratory motion, the primary breathing of the cranial bones, which is why she had pain just up here behind her ear. And once we did a few adjustments with the ribs, that's what Cole did, the pain up here went away instantly. And at the end of the appointment, she was like, oh, you know, I was pressing here and uh, and uh, I've been having pain here. And she pressed it and she's like, oh, wait, I don't actually have pain here anymore. And um, it was just a beautiful moment as a practitioner to see that unravel for a patient. And when that happens eight to 10 times a day, you start to really love your work and it doesn't even feel like work anymore. Yeah, I think watching you guys kind of test that and, and see how the body can basically tell you what's going on if you are willing to listen and that it's not yeah the sight of pain is not what's actually the root cause and and that's really it's it's really cool it's i've had some similar experiences with uh other maybe like chiropractic or other alternative type practitioners even physical therapy but never in that depth and and the body type as well was was really interesting and it seems like again you kind of use this uh, strategy to identify a person's strengths, weaknesses. So maybe you could go into that because that kind of also is in the quantum realm of things and it seems to be working really well for you guys. And I don't think I've ever heard of anybody doing it the way that you're doing it. So yeah, maybe you could explain how you break down individuals into, I believe it's three different bodies or three or four different body types and it's based on color. Yeah, so th- this is where the dentistry emerges from dentistry to functional dentistry to postural dentistry to now quantum dentistry. Um, and uh, what we what we know is that inside our eye, everyone's eye, there are photoreceptors which are receiving different colors and the three colors they receive are red, green, and blue. And so with our eye, we're able to see 5 million different colors on that spectrum of red, green, and blue. 
But what happens is, is that there's actually variations between individuals. So some people have more red cones, red photoreceptors or cones. Other people have more blue and other people have more green. And so what Cole and I do is we use kinesiology to work out what is their primary color response. What is the what is the most um, what is the highest density cone that they have in their eye? Is it a red cone? Is it a blue cone? Is it a green cone? And so once we work out what their primary one is, we then work out what their secondary one is. So if someone is a, a primary red, does it mean that the, the second highest density of cones in their eye is a green or is it a blue? So are they a red, green, blue or a red, blue, green? And then similarly, you can have a blue, red, green or a blue, green, red and a green, blue, red and a green, red, blue. So there's actually six different body six. types. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And the cool thing is that all of those body types actually have specific character traits about them which are pretty much like I've been doing this for about six months now and like it hasn't failed yet. So like I remember testing you, you're a green, blue, red, Tristan. And when I started to tell you what some of your character traits was without even knowing much about you, you were like, yep. You were like, yep. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was all making sense. And you're like, how do you, how do you know this, Jalal? Um, and so what the significance of those colors are, what they represent is that each color actually corresponds to a character trait. So the greens have really strong cellular metabolism, cellular function, gut function, just that typical biochemistry type of medicine. They just they do that really well. And it's just something about them that does it. Like it's just how they're built. Then you have the reds. The reds have really good structure. And so it may be hard for them to put on weight because their structure is their strength or they might be tall and broad and really solid. And then you've got the blues and the blues have have a very strong emotion and intuition and um, emotional intelligence. And so once we work out what one's primary is, so if you're a Christian, you're a green, blue, red, if you don't mind me saying, um, it doesn't mean that because blue is your secondary color that you don't have any emotional intelligence. Um, and it doesn't mean that because red is your tertiary color response that you don't have a good structure because you clearly do. It just means that your emotional intelligence and your structure, your red, they are only going to operate well if you've got good metabolism. So if you're eating crap, it's going to affect you mentally and emotionally and it's going to affect you structurally. And so once you break down what's up, what someone is, then what we do is we put different colors in front of their eyes and we see what is the, So we call, I guess this is the field of syntonics and we're actually seeing what level the patient or the client is operating at. So if Tristan's a green, blue, red, when I put red in front of his eyes and I kinesiology test him, I want him to go weak on red. And then his secondary color is blue. I want him to go weak on blue. But his primary color is green. So I want him to his arm, when I'm kinesiology testing him, I want it to be strong on green. And um, that is a sign of someone that is healthy. That is a sign of someone that is... Um, that is within themselves, that is in their full power and is on a, a platform or a foundation from which they can build if they are on a healing journey. So what happens if someone comes to me and they're a green, blue, red and they've denatured to red? What I mean by that is they're no longer seeing green in the eyes but they're strong red in the eyes. So I put a red color in front of them and they test strong on in the arm to their tertiary color strength. You with me? Yep. So what that means is they're not healthy. 
something's gone wrong in their life. It could be vibrational, vibrationally, from a you know chakras perspective. It could be psychophysically, um, from an emotions perspective. It could be metabolically. It could be um, structurally. It could be any any sort of issue that could be throwing them off and causing them to denature. And so then, how is that person able to heal? How is that person able to lose weight? How is that person able to break out of their mental illness if they have denatured to such a degree that they're seeing their tertiary color through the eyes and um, they're testing strong on their tertiary color? It's basically impossible for them unless they do a shitload of work for like, you know, two years and they're seeing every practitioner under the sun and wasting money. So this is where the quantum dentistry comes in because I can make mouth guards inside the mouth for the patients to wear while they're sleeping that instantly bring a person back from their secondary or tertiary denaturing back to their primary color. And I tested it and I show them right on the spot by mimicking the mouth guard and then I put the primary color response in front of their eyes and they go strong. So like if you had denatured, you're a green, blue, red, you had denatured down to red, I could have mimicked the mouth guard that I would have made for you, put it inside your mouth got you to bite down and swallow, put green in front of your eyes and you would have tested strong on green. It happens all day, every day without fail. And so what we now have is a, a system where we can use the mouth to help bring a patient back to their optimal platform from which they can function and now go and heal. So I kind of think of it as like a biohack. It's like if someone's completely struggling and they can't even pick themselves up off the floor, this is going to get them standing and then they can walk away and start healing. And so, so how why, do why, these... Sorry, I, I was just going to ask, why Why is it the mouth that is the most effective way to kind of alter these incorrect or, or denatured uh, body color types? Because the way I'm understanding is like the cones, say you're a primary green and you're really um, acting as a red, you know, the cones are still there in the eyes there's more green but they're just getting the wrong input signal or Correct. they're being deactivated so the why is the mouth the best way to fix that is it just because it's in close proximity and relationship to the jaw and thus the cranial the cranium um and the cranial bones or yeah wow well i don't know about you but this episode is making me a little peckish and you know what sounds good? Some beef liver crisps from our sponsor, Nose to Tail Provisions, who provide 100% grass-fed and finished wild game animal products sourced from America. Their completely microplastic-free products are absolutely delicious and great if you need something in a pinch or just love a good snack. Each product is packed with the most nutrition possible. I love their new viral dust bison liver seasoning. And with code Tristan10, you'll be saving 10% on every bit of your order as well as supporting our show. Really, really good question. So the mouth is responsible for providing 40% of the input back into the brain. So 40% of the sensory information that the brain is receiving is coming from this whole area. At the same time, 40% of the output that is coming out of the brain is going to the mouth. So it's actually a really, really important part of the entire body. And if you think about survival, some of the most important things we need to be able to do to survive are to breathe, which yes, we're breathing through our nose, but the nose is just a functional space which is predominantly surrounded by the upper jaw. 
So even nasal breathing is still, if you look at things anatomically, still dependent on a good upper jaw. Breathing is one thing. Mouth is very important for that. The second thing is, is that um, speaking, communicating with other tribe members. And the other thing, of course, is just eating in order to be able to chew so that so the mouth is super, super important for survival, which is why you have such a huge amount of the sensory information that is coming into the brain and the motor output that is coming out of the brain all going geared towards the mouth. So if you've got such a big part of the brain being innovated by the mouth and vice versa, could the mouth not be used to influence the central nervous system? It can. And so then the mechanism behind how that is is that the mouth can be used to optimize the rhythm of the cranial bones because, and I'll elaborate on that in a second, once we optimize the rhythm of the cranial bones, have you ever heard of the um, term cerebrospinal fluid, CSF? Oh yeah, definitely. So the cerebrospinal fluid, which is an ultra filtrate of blood and happens to be a really important quantum fluid, pumps down the spinal cord and back up into the brain and down the spinal cord and up back up into the brain. And so the hydraulic pump for that is literally the cranial sacral mechanism that I started the podcast recording with, with the cranial bones and the sacrum moving out and back in, out and back in. That creates the pump for the cerebrospinal fluid. Mm. And so what is the cerebrospinal flow when that is optimized? What is that unlocking in order for that person to go and heal? Well, you mentioned earlier that the body has an innate intelligence within it to be able to heal it's just purely unlocking that because we know that all the memory is stored within the hydrogen bonds of the water networks inside of our body and the most important network that there is is the one inside our central nervous system which is the cerebrospinal fluid so by optimizing the cerebrospinal fluid we're able to then unlock all of the all of the information and the healing capacity stored within those hydrogen bonds And for anyone that knows anything about quantum biology, we have a huge amount of energy that is stored within the bonds between molecules, huge amount of energy. Even if we haven't seen the sun in like two months, we can still survive because we have so much energy stored within us, within our water networks. So it unlocks all of that to provide the energy for healing. So this is kind of, I've just laid out for you the, the pathway or the mechanism of how we can use the mouth to um, bring people back to a foundation or a platform from which they can go and heal. That's that makes like perfect sense to me that that oscillation. Because I was thinking about what what is the reason for this bone oscillation, and now that you mentioned, it's kind of like a a pump for that spinal fluid. Obviously, at a pretty slow fre- low frequency um, of oscillation, but yeah, that that makes a lot of sense and. If you haven't listened to our episode with with Carrie Bennett, where we talk about water, definitely recommend that one as well. And we can get into that a bit more, the quantum side of things. But I'm I'm curious on the body types, the blue, green, red, kind of the cones being, you know, one color being dominant. Obviously, there's genetics. There's this is leading to different personality types or strengths or weaknesses. What, yeah, what, I guess, what is determining, or I know you're probably just theorizing this at, you know, the early stages, but I think you mentioned that you and I have similar uh, cone type, body type, and we have, yeah, different genetics, different, different location, different parts of the world. 
So what, what do you think is determining the body type or the primary cone density in our eyes? I would say that's probably just nature's wisdom and evolution, you know. Um, I haven't really looked into what's the driver behind it. Um, I just know that there are those natural variations, but I think it's the same like there's natural variations in skin complexion, in eye complexion. I think the same applies for, for the cones. Um, I did want to raise But it's one not, I guess just to well. clarify, it's not It's not something you inherit, right? Like it's, it could be completely different from your mom, your dad. 100%. Like you're, 100%. So like okay. Because your, your skin and mom. your hair is some usually some form of inheritance from from your family but to me it's it sounded like and i just wanted to confirm that this could be you know completely unique to the individual 100 percent. so it's not necessary that just because your mother and father are green blue red that you're going to be a green blue red um so yeah i definitely can confirm that because i've seen mothers and mothers and children or fathers and children and they're completely different and both parents might be con- different to the child um so yeah, definitely um, I wouldn't lean on it just being a, a genetic predisposition to a particular um, particular body type. We do see some ethnicities that have a higher proportion of green, blue, reds or red, green, blues, etc. Um, so, for instance, Ireland has a lot of um, has a lot of green, blue, reds. And so if someone is of Irish descent in Australia or in the US, there's a high chance it could be a green, blue, red. Um the cool thing as well about these body types is that the greens, the blues, and the reds, they all grind differently. And so, like, grinding is, like, a massive topic in dentistry um, where, you know, like, we've got to wear mouth guards to protect our teeth from grinding and all that type of stuff. But I'm actually of the opinion that there's nothing wrong with grinding as long as you're grinding according to your body type because if your nature, nature doesn't make mistakes and Mother Nature's wisdom is such that She's going to design teeth that are suited for one's particular style of grinding. Some people are predisposed to grinding left to right. Other people are predisposed to grinding forwards and back. And then other people are predisposed to not grinding at all, but just clenching. And so when the greens, the blues, and the reds all have different types of ways that they're grinding, if you're a green and your teeth have been designed by Mother Nature in a way for you to grind or clench like a green, but you've denatured down to a blue or a red, all of a sudden you're grinding in a different way. And so you start to wear away your teeth because they're not designed for you to grind that particular way. Does that make sense? So whenever I see grinding marks on patients' teeth, I usually think there's some sort of denaturing that's going on there. And there'll be dentists that may listen to this that may be like, oh, but the grinding is because of the airway compromise and I'm not denying that because there's a lot of people that think that oh, if you can't if your airway's blocked that's when your lower jaw moves around in order to make your airway bigger for you to breathe while you're sleeping but the airway compromise is still fundamentally a structural compromise which is a compromise of the red color which why it's fits in the paradigm um, so fix that structural issue and the grinding starts to reset back to that person's particular body type so we talked about kind of the jaw and and having impacts there and and that being really important obviously there's a huge relationship with light and i'd imagine our our light environment so this is something that you know i've thought about and i wanted to ask you is yeah does the body type and thus the you know photoreceptor density type and and variance 
really affect how we're interacting with lights. Um, is it a big difference, say, if someone is primary blue, that they may be more or less uh, prone to artificial light at night, for example, and same with like red light from, you know, sunlight. Um, are they able to better utilize these frequencies if, if that's a primary color instead of a tertiary, tertiary and how, and then we can get into maybe how artificial light is damaging this. But I'm, cu I'm curious there from the first perspective is, is there a difference in the body types interactions with light because of this? That is a super, super good question. I've been thinking about that myself. So the, I, I theorize because I'm looking more and more into this space and I'm looking to connect with local syntonics practitioners to understand more about light in the eye. But this is what I theorize and what I know from people that whose body types I know and how they react to blue light. If someone is, for instance, a red, green, blue, their tertiary color is blue, they get destroyed by artificial blue light absolutely destroyed by it and I know it because I know plenty of red green blues and they get hammered by blue light um, the artificial type that being said like there's plenty of blue red greens or blue green reds that I know who aren't too heavily affected by the blue light so they might have a better ability to handle the artificial blue light I still wouldn't say it's okay for them to bathe in it because no, yeah. I know what the artificial light is doing to, you know, the vitamin A levels and a whole host of other things, their photoreceptors degrading the melanin, the DHA and all that type of stuff. Um, but I just know that there are some people that are more sensitive to that artificial blue. That makes sense to me, actually. Yeah, because then, yeah, if they have higher density of those blue light receptors, they'd be, yeah, they'd be, I guess, better able to handle more blue light at the wrong times or for compared to someone who has then less. So the tertiary, yeah, that makes sense. So then maybe someone who has red light as their primary is really able to take advantage of uh, sunlight or the red light from, from sun exactly. and then green. Exactly. So the I know green light has a few specific uh, biological functions as well that I don't know off the top of my head, but. Yeah, so I mean, like, we're getting into some really technical stuff, which gets me excited. But um, the I'm really looking to probably next year. We're recording this in what November 2023, 2024. I'll be going down the massive rabbit hole of like different colors in the eyes and how that influences metabolism, um, and syntonics and stuff like that. Because I believe from the work that I've been doing in the dental space that we can use the mouth to regulate the nervous system as I've just laid out for you, but we can use color in the eye to regulate one's metabolism. And then you start to head down like a really quantum dental, quantum health route where you're able to really hack a person's system because of the understanding of how the combs work with metabolism, et cetera. Yeah, I feel like there's so so much that you're going to uncover and, and learn through this. And that's really exciting. I mean, it's all, yeah, like you said, it's not just uh, a dentistry practice then uh, it's uh, just holistic health or whatever you want to call it it's the whole body uh, you're able to you know solve all the issues uh, with this knowledge and it, it makes sense to just think about all this right like we're just getting the right fixing the the issues arise from from having the wrong input signals to our biology and Something you, yeah, you snuck in there is, is just how damaging, you know, artificial light can be. And something we've talked about uh, quite a bit on this podcast, but we never really dive in the details. So maybe we get into that a bit here at the end is 
you know, quantum biology kind of at a high level, you know, how, how do you explain this to maybe, I don't know how often you talk about it with patients or, or kind of just individuals who are new to this area is, you know, how do you explain the importance of, of quantum biology and why this is a different perspective than kind of any other, I guess you could say, alternative health practice? So the way that I explain it is first, I, I lay the ground with my patient about what we can all agree on. And that is fundamentally, we are a bag of electrons and protons. And very few people will argue with that because they, if they know anything from bio, from high school biology or chemistry, they'll know that we're made up of molecules and atoms and atoms are made up of electrons and protons and there's a nucleus and all that type of stuff. So if we agree on that, then it's very easy to lay out the fact that electrons and protons dance out the different wavelengths of light. And so Richard Feynman laid out a lot of work with quantum electrodynamics to explain how light interacts with electrons, but we also know that red light interacts heavily with protons. And um, now we basically have both arms of the human body, electrons and protons, being influenced by different wavelengths of light. And so what is the one source of light on this planet which has all frequencies of light that we need? It is the sun, of course, because the sun, we evolved under the sun, we evolved with our feet on the earth, we evolved connected to nature, immersed in nature, and what we have started to do is move, or if we rewind a little bit, we evolved from the sun connected to earth under one octave of the 73 octaves in the electromagnetic spectrum. And that octave is that of visible light with the infrared and UV light at either either end. But what we have now done is we have moved our lives out of that one octave and we have moved into several other octaves that include microwaves, radio waves, 3G, 4G, 5G. And these are still light wavelengths, but they're light wavelengths that we can't see. So we call them non-visual light. And this non-visual light, the impact that it has on our electrons and protons is it makes them dance differently. It's fundamentally what happens. And so we've been we've been evolving underneath the sun connected to Earth, sensing the Earth's human resonance, which is 7.83 hertz. But we're now living and our brains have been wired to operate, our alpha waves in our brain operate at 7.83 hertz, which is 7.83 waves per second. But now we're living in Wi-Fi, which is 2.4 billion waves per second and 3G and 4G and 5G, so now we're living outside of the spectrum from which we evolved. So the only thing that can happen is something called a change in topology or size and shape. And that is what you see in society these days. We have seen a fundamental change in the size and shape of people. People are bigger, people are, and that that extra size, that epidemic of obesity and people that are overweight has got little to do with food and more to do with thermodynamic inefficiency, which really boils down to the fact that we are living outside of the wavelengths from which we evolved. Now, one might argue that artificial blue light is still within the visible spectrum, and that is true. We can still see it, but it is completely unbalanced. It is almost 85% in some cases, just pure blue light. And there is no instance in the history of mankind where we have been exposed to purely 85% blue light because all the blue light that is in the sun is always completely balanced by an equal or greater amount of red light and infrared light. And we are not seeing that at all in the lights that we are exposing ourselves to. 
So in the words of Dr. Cruz, we've created an alien sun. We've created a microwave planet and we are bathing underneath this alien sun within this microwave. And the only thing that does is it impacts the bioenergetics of the mitochondria inside of us. And one thing the mitochondria do, aside from producing ATP, is they produce water. And the water inside of our bodies is the water that is made by our mitochondria. So when we are when we are bathing in artificial blue light in a microwave that is Earth right now with all the telecommunications with 3G, 4G, 5G, etc., we are dehydrating our cells. We are de- dehydrating our bodies because the mitochondria are not producing water like they used to. And all of the proteins in our body, all of the vitamins, all of the um, all of the photoreceptors, all of the enzymes, all of the hormones, they all have to be hydrated in order to function. So what frustrates me on health Twitter and Instagram Twitter is there's always people fussing over vitamin B12 and this and that, but um, I mean, there are those in the quantum space that fuss over it, but I don't get bothered by that because I know what they know, um, that they appreciate all of the things that I've just said. But we've got all of these gym bros and health bros who are um, who are fussing over, you know, you've got to eat this and you've got to take that vitamin and you've got to take that supplement, but they're not realizing that it has to be hydrated in, in order for it to work. And the only way for it to be hydrated is if you have optimal mitochondrial function, which hinges on optimal circadian signaling with light through the eyes on the skin, eating at the right time of the day, as well as connection to nature, grounding, um, and uh, avoiding the artificial blue light the, and the artificial EMFs. Yeah, that was that was beautiful. I mean, it's, it's really uh, what a great overview on everything that we're both, you know, delving deep into. And yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think it's just it's so hard for people to grasp really that this is the crux of the issues in our society. To me, when it kind of clicked, it, you know, it clicked because I realized that the more time I spent in nature and the less time I spent in artificial environments, the better I felt, you know? So it innately, it made sense to me because I had this real world anecdotal experience. Like this is when I felt my best. This is when I do feel my best. And when you think of, humans just have evolved for a million years and only in the past 150 years we've really been bathing in um, artificial frequencies and only in the past 10 to 20 years maybe we've you know we've just taken an exponential leap in our exposure and, and that's only getting worse and and of course you could argue that there's you know some changes going on since we started farming as a uh, species, but really the past 150 years has been dramatic in terms of, of that shift. And, and we've seen the rise in chronic disease because of that. So yeah, but we could just all drink more, uh, more water out of plastic and go to the gym and we'll be good. Right. So it, it it's okay. hard because okay. this is, oh, you can go. Sorry. That's right. I was, I was going to say, I've come to appreciate that the reason why people find it so hard to believe that something like quantum biology and circadian biology is super important, perhaps foundational, or it is foundational. The reason why they find that hard to believe is because it's so easy. It's like it, it can't be that easy to get healthy <laughs> by just doing that. Like you can't tell me that just watching the morning sunrise for 180 days in a row and getting maxing morning light and catching the UVA rise and grounding at the same time and eating clean is all there is to it. Um, 
And so this is why I actually really study the quantum biology in depth is because now I can go into the deep, deep science to prove the fact that something so simple is actually the most important thing. Yeah, same, same here, right? Because it is easy. Like the takeaways are, are pretty easy. They're challenging in a modern world. They're actually, that's the real exactly. hard part is if you're so ingrained and enthralled and stuck in this system. I mean, yeah, you can't. Yeah, some people can't even watch the sunrise. Some people are just stuck in a cubicle all day long and some are working night shift. Godspeed to all of you out there who are doing that because you realize just how important it is to be connected to the net, the real world, the natural world. And yeah, it's the same. It's, it's like you want to go and find this out because there is so much left. Although there's so much left to learn, although the takeaways and the principles are simple, we know so little about how our biology actually functions. And to me, what's cool is that a lot of this kind of was learned, sprinkled, theorized throughout the 20th century. Like, you know, Richard Feynman just what, in the 60s, a lot of this in St. Georgie and before that. And, you know, some of these researchers, kind of Robert O. Becker's in the 70s, and it's just gotten swept under the rug. And, and now we have this ability to educate through, you know, the internet and social media. And I think it's an art because, yeah, like you said, on, on Twitter, Instagram, it's easy to just get lost in the health education space. And you kind of have to sprinkle it in there. But it seems like right now there's never been more momentum behind the principles of circadian quantum health being imperative. And it's it's really exciting to see that people are, are really grasping because they should want to implement modalities that are they're effective, but they're also accessible to anybody, right? Which so, makes them decentralized, which is what decentralized radio is all about, right? You know, that's what I love about it is that exactly. we are able to access health modalities which are completely decentralized. One thing I love about the sun is that the sun itself is decentralized. There is no one on the planet that will not benefit from sun exposure. And that is the ultimate expression of decentralization. That's right, man. I mean, it's it's what it's all about. And it's, it's like you don't need to be reliant on other people to tell you what to do to be healthy or these medicines. You know, you can break free from that. And when you have your health, you have sovereignty in a major facet of, of your life. Um, you know, obviously, uh, money is important as well. And we know that the Bitcoin, we talk a lot about Bitcoin, but if you don't have your health, you don't really have much and you're always going to be reliant on someone else. So you're never really going to be in the driver's seat uh, of your life. But yeah, you know, nature, as, as Jack always says, nature is the true decentralized system. And it's true. And you go out in nature and you realize that, right? Like there's no, there's no regard for the reliance or, or the kind of the norms in, in society. If you go out into the wilderness, there's there's a hierarchy, there's work that needs to be put in, but there's no guarantee at the end of the day. And it kind of just unfolds the way it unfolds. But there's this very synergistic, biodynamic system that's full of life and it's all powered by the sun. So that's the reason why we're here. Well, I think as you said, like um, there has to be a proof of work, doesn't there? That's what happens in nature. There's a physical power projection, to use the words of Jason Lowry 
not sure if you heard of his um his podcast with Preston Pish, uh, yeah, yeah, a while back, um, but like how beautifully did he lay out that physical power projection that determines the custody over the the chain of custody over resources? It's the same in modern society right now, and um, the the thing about quantum health and circadian biology is that a lot of people shy away from it because it does require a proof of work. It does require you onboarding or re-onboarding responsibility for your health rather than abdicating from it and sending it out to Big Pharma to take care of your health, if we can even call it that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's really important that people take responsibility for themselves to find the best um, the best practices in health out there. For me, quantum medicine is it from a, a, a medical perspective. And I think I'm pretty close to it from a dental perspective as well. Um, so yeah, it's a pretty cool space to be. Where do you think we, we go from here? You know, say, ideally, this becomes, you know, understood as, as a pretty impactful health paradigm, health intervention. Like this is it becomes more, you know, research uh, becomes more of a priority, say, in, in 20 years. Technology has continued to advance. You know, how, how do we continue to advance as a species in line with nature, in line with what our quantum biology is designed to do? And, and say, you know, whatever I just said about it becoming a priority and, and stuff like that, there's no guarantee. So ideally speaking, because we have this kind of evolution ongoing and, and artificial intelligence, people think the de-evolution of humans has, has already begun. There's kind of like no going back and we're just gonna slowly evolve into maybe half cyborgs, half whatever, but we're, we're gonna lose touch with our biology as, as we know it. Kind of what are your thoughts on how do we do it the right way? How do we evolve but in line with nature? I think we're seeing that at play. A lot of people consider disease or dis-ease something that's going wrong. I see it as nature trying to find a way to evolve within this man-made microwave that we've created on planet Earth. So all things like diabetes and Alzheimer's disease and metabolic syndrome um, and cancer, these are all expressions of Mother Nature to try and find a way to, for us to survive. And as grim as it may sound, I don't think that will last millennia, but who knows? Um, it's one thing for Mother Nature to decide, and all we can do is play our part in educating as many people as we can about what we believe to be the truth and um, hoping they they take it on and um, take it forward and uh, spread the word. Yeah, I. it's hard. It's, it's one I kind of probably go back and forth on because there is a way obviously to use technology smarter. I mean, if we could build everything from scratch, we could definitely have a way better, you know, and with this in mind, with, with quantum biology in mind, we, we could do it a different way from an engineering perspective, I think. So it, it's fun to theorize with these thought experiments because if you don't think about kind of what is the ideal solution, you won't even get like 2% towards that ideal solution. But I think for now, we're, we're still, you know, a long ways away and, and just getting more people outside and, and connected on a daily basis is going to be a tremendous positive leap to for, for, for a lot of people. I think one of the cool things about our system 
and by our system I mean like the the body is that it has a an immense ability to take on assault and continue to survive and so mm -hmm. we can throw so much at our bodies in terms of poor light a lack of connection to nature we can eat processed foods for years and years and years and yet we are still alive and we are still somewhat thriving some of us despite all the annihilation and assault that we have thrown on our bodies and so it just goes to show that there is an inherent drive to survive within us i think that is central to all life and that's not something which is going away so perhaps we will find a way to to push forward and evolve to live in this um this this new type of environment that we've created for ourselves and um, if we are able to pull it off, I wouldn't be surprised because of the intelligence that is housed within us. Um, so, yeah, I think it's important to acknowledge the, the beauty and the intelligence within the body and its ability to handle so much assault yet still survive and at the same time begin healing so quickly with the smallest inputs or the smallest changes by catching a couple of sunrises and in a row and all of a sudden your sleep starts to change after 20 years of abusing your eyes with artificial blue light. Isn't it just incredible how just some minor, minor tweaks can have such a profound change so quickly? Yeah, I mean, I did a podcast earlier today and, and the one thing I always emphasize is that, you know, perfection is, is not even, it's not even possible. It's not a realistic goal. It's not even feasible. I mean, perfect health does not exist. I mean, it just isn't real. Um, but if you can just have these minor incremental improvements and be consistently improving that over time, I mean, you're going to compound that interest for your own benefit. And like you said, if, if you actually give your body a fighting chance by getting some restorative sleep for the first time, or maybe the, the first consistent time in your life, you're going to be shocked at how much benefit or how much better you'll feel. And I think that's something that we're all invoking uh, a lot of change in people in that regard. But just going back to the outlook, you know, something Bitcoiners um, say uh, long term is it, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a few generations, but I kind of see it as a natural balancing mechanism right now. And unfortunately, we are seeing this chronic disease prevalence younger and younger. But at the end of the day, um, Marty Bent, who I'm actually interviewing next week, I'm super excited about. He always says, you know, we, we are going to win. Um, and it's really the fight for humanity. And that truth will always resonate. And, and to me, this truth of what actually works at, at fixing our health, which is rooted in quantum circadian biology as we talk, you know, it will resonate. You know, people are going to do stuff. They're going to realize that the, the medications don't work. I mean, most people already realize that. They just, like, don't have a better alternative. They don't know or they're just stuck. A lot of people are going to realize the supplements don't really work either long term. People are already starting to do this more and more. And they're going to start trying the things that we're talking about. And they're going to realize that they do actually work. So it may take time, decades, but the truth always resonates if uh, the momentum is strong enough and we keep spreading the message. So I like to be maybe um, a bit more optimistic. I don't know why, but it to me, it's nevertheless a really exciting time to be alive and just be a part of the movement for good and light. You're an optimist because you're a green, blue, red, just like me. <laughs> there we go. That's why, folks. <laughs>
Uh, well, Jalal, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. We definitely have to do this again and maybe dive a bit deeper into quantum biology rabbit holes as we kind of delve down that more and more in the podcast. There's there's so much there, but yeah, people want to find more about your work and what you're doing with Quantum Kid, what you're doing with your dentistry practice and just in general online, where where can they find you? Yeah, sure. So um, regarding the quantum health side of things, my Instagram handle, also the same from my Twitter handle is K2Calibre, K2C-A-L-I-B-R-E. And um, regarding the Quantum Kid work that I do, which is the joint work with my osteopath, Cole Clayton, where we work on children um, to help guide their jaw and facial development, the Instagram handle is at the.quantum.kit. And um, I'm sure you can pop that in the show notes for, for listeners. Absolutely. We will definitely put that in the show notes. And yeah, hopefully we'll we'll stay in touch and, and do this again sometime in the future. But appreciate your time, man. Thanks, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Tristan. I had a blast. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in as well. We'll see you next time on Decentralized Radio. 